everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name's Aaron, and welcome back. I feel like it's been so long since we uh, we talked to you guys. Yeah, it's really been a while, but uh, it's been a while because we've been doing something really cool and something a little a little bit different uh, from our typical episode of Fly on the Wall. Uh, this week, we came to you all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we're doing something a little bit more fun. Uh, we went all the way to Atlanta to talk to a bunch of different people who are involved in something that is very different for America's political system. Uh, it's what's called a special election uh, for Congress. Basically what happened is uh, Tom Price, who was the representative for Georgia's 6th Congressional District, uh, was nominated to be the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary. So he's out, which means there needs to be a new congressman because you can't go about two years without a congressman, right, Aaron? Nope, you <laughs> cannot. So what they're able to do is they're able to schedule this very special election for April 18th, if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to be electing someone new to take that seat in Congress. Now, what's interesting about this district is that uh, even before it was Tom Price's seat, a former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, held this seat. And uh, so as you can see, it's a traditionally uh, Republican who serves in this district, but Democrats are making a push for this district, am I right? Yeah, it's definitely uh, a district that is turning blue. Uh, to give you a couple really interesting st statistics, Tom Price won this seat in 2016 by uh, like 19 points. Like it was a huge landslide. Um, and that's what, uh, we're really chalking that up to incumbency victory um, and the fact that Tom Price was a good representative for them. Um, but Donald Trump only won this district by 1%. Uh, so it's definitely a district that is very much uh, in the hunt for Democrats and a district that the DCCC is targeted, um, which means that they have poured an insane amount of money into this district because it's really the only competitive district for a special election going on right now. There's an election going on in L.A. Um, that has like 22 Democrats and a Democrat's going to take that. It's you know just really a matter of who. Uh, but this district is a district that Democrats could take. Um, and, you know, they're really setting their, uh, their bar high here. And Georgia really in total is a district or is a um, is an area that is trending blue as well. Um, it's been a traditionally red district um, and it's really, really coming back. Uh, so really, this podcast this week is trying to give you guys a snapshot of what's going on here, because in a typical special election, no one's really paying attention, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, no one really cares. Um, but for some reason, this special election has captivated America and a lot of people have been talking about it. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that, uh, but the best way to really get an understanding of it um, is to go there and see what's going on, and so that's what we did. Yeah, well, he, he likes to say we, and he pretends like this is a team effort, but this one was uh, almost entirely on Christian. He went there uh, with the geopolitics team, left me, his good old roommate, behind, uh, and I had a pretty lonely weekend without him, but we're really excited to see what he got up to, and I just want to touch on another point that he made before. Uh, I think this race has garnered national attention, especially from those on the left, because they see it as sort of a, a turning point in the narrative over the last 10 months. I mean, just in, the, uh, just in November, uh, Democrats got wiped right across the board electorally, and, and Republicans saw a huge victory. So Democrats setting their sights on 2018 and 2020 see this as sort of a, a kickstart to what could be a successful electoral uh, landslide perhaps in 2018, if they're able to pick up some momentum. So I think that's what's added some star power and excitement to this race. Yeah, definitely Democrats have gotten interested in it because they're looking at it to, as a, like a resistance to the President Trump administration. Uh, and on the flip side, for Republicans, they're seeing it as, um, and this is really fascinating because we get really to see the first reaction uh, by Congress or possible congressmen 
um, to uh, President Trump and the Trump administration to see how Republicans are going to react, uh, because Donald Trump isn't a typical Republican. Um, and to see, you know, uh, it's really interesting to see some of these Republican candidates, you know, really keep the president at arm's length and other candidates really embrace the president's administration. And then there are some candidates who are, in fact, just like uh, really unsure um, how they really want to handle it. So it's a really fascinating uh, look into um, the Trump administration itself. Well, that being said, I guess it's time for you to uh, go catch a plane and we will talk to you uh, all the way from Georgia. Yeah, we're at Manuel's Tavern. Uh, it was owned, founded by Manuel Maluth, who's a, who was a longtime Democratic power broker in Georgia. He was the former CEO of DeKalb County, which is a, one of Atlanta's main uh, metro counties. And this was a place where lawmakers, where politicians, candidates, reporters, police officers, firefighters would all get together and after hours and just talk over policies, over lunch. Judges show up here to this day all the time. So our next guest is probably the guy who is the most knowledgeable about the Georgia 6th election uh, that there is out there, to be completely honest with you. His name is Greg Bluestein, and he's a journalist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, basically, he's the journalist that everybody knows and everybody needs to know. You know, in every uh, local political election, there's a guy who is constantly writing about this election uh, for, you know, news around the area. And that's Greg Bluestein. And basically, he is in contact and constant connection with every single candidate and every single candidate's staffers. Um, he is the guy that candidates go to to uh, break news, to leak information, uh, if they want a story written about them. But the thing about Greg is that he's not just a simple journalist who just writes whatever story his candidates want him to write. Um, he really pushes back, and he's known for pushing back. Um, and he writes what he wants to write at the end of the day. Um, and he really has a monopoly on this election in this area. Um, so that makes him a really fascinating guy to know. Um, it's a very different scene from in Washington, D.C., where, you know, you have 30 or 40 journalists who are all fighting for the same scoop. That's not the same in, you know, local politics and local elections. Greg is the guy that you go to. And he's broken really every possible story that there is about this election, um, including some really interesting ones that I just want to really quickly highlight because I think they're hilarious and I think you guys would really like them. Um, the first is, uh, you have to remember that this is Atlanta. This is Coca-Cola country. Um, you know, Coca-Cola was started in Atlanta. They have the world of Coke, the headquarters of Coca-Cola. Um, and they are really, really big on Coca-Cola. I mean, there is no, um, there's no Pepsi in sight. They have a monopoly on Coke in the area. Um, except when financial disclosures came out, uh, we actually found out that one of the candidates, uh, Dan Moody, had taken money from Pepsi. And this was a huge deal in the area, which I thought was really interesting. Um, he's also broken some, you know, bigger, hard-hitting stories. Uh, for example, one of the Republicans, she had no money, um, had actually fired her entire, or had her entire staff had left because um, they weren't paying her, or she wasn't paying them. And they actually, a couple of them were staying in her basement, and she had to kick them out. Um, and it really just goes to show that, A, Greg gets behind the scenes of every single story that there is out there. Um, for the GA6 election. Um, 
and also just how much he just knows and the depth of knowledge that he has. So, you know, being a reporter for Georgia and Georgia 6, uh, can you talk to us about, you know, the biggest story that you broke um, or that was broken in this election, the most impactful one, and, you know, how, how you went about breaking it? Yeah. Um, so in Georgia 6, it's sort of the, the district which spans from basically northern Atlanta suburbs is the backbone of the AJC's readership. I'd say a huge chunk of our readers live in the district, and so the candidates and the AJC both realize how important it is to be all over this race. We've broken the the, the candidacies of pretty much every major candidate in the race, Um, all the big commercials, all the big fundraising, all the big attacks, um, questions about Bob Grace pro-Trump credentials, questions about one of the candidates' campaign, you know, financing questions about John Ossoff's resume, all of those stories have appeared first in the AJC because our readership can't get enough of reading about the 6th District. It is the most important, uh, it is the most competitive congressional election in the nation right now, and it's the most important election in Georgia this year. Can you talk to us a little bit about those two stories with campaign finance? Because um, they're, they're pretty interesting, and I think they, uh, it really tells a lot about uh, Georgia and Georgia's residents. Yeah, um, well... The John Ossoff resume questions were, were, were was, a, was a big issue, and Republicans who are trying to bog down his numbers are questioning whether or not he has the experience. Uh, pretty quickly, we saw some 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 um, some videos of him at Georgetown that Republicans have used to disparage uh, him as a, a as, as too inexperienced to run for the race and as too immature to run for the race. Um, but also, we got a hold of his resume. Um, looked at his, some of his records, some of his experience, and, and, and really dug deep while also hearing what Republicans were saying and, of course, talking to Ossoff. When, you, when you're going about these stories, you've got to make sure you've, you talk to people on all sides of the debate and all sides of the issue, and, of course, the campaign and the candidate themselves, and make sure you give them enough time to answer some of these issues. So here's the thing about uh, Georgia's democratic process. In the fact that they have what is called a jungle primary, which means any candidate can declare... Um, And there's no real primary process for parties um, in the sense that basically how it works is the top two vote getters, um, if they don't reach 50%, go to what's called a runoff. So um, basically this first election on April 18th can have as many candidates as possible. And in fact, they do. They have about 14 candidates, um, that being, you know, about 10 or 11 Republicans and three or four Democrats, depending on who you ask, because some of those people are polling at, you know, less than 1%. It's, you know, really a question of are they really in the race. Um, But what that means for our next guest is um, that political parties are not necessarily allowed to work for a single candidate. Um, So our next guest's name is Rebecca DeHart. She's the executive director of the Georgia Democratic Party. Um, And her job is very difficult in this election because... Um, she is not allowed to endorse or work towards any singular candidate. Um, yet the problem with that is the Democrats have a very clear front runner in John Ossoff, um, who's pulling it, you know, 40% uh, in total, and, you know, no Democrat in the race is really getting anywhere near that. Um, so basically what that means is uh, she cannot work for uh, John Ossoff's campaign or really coordinate with that campaign whatsoever um, due to the rules of Georgia politics. Um, and really, uh, this is... This is not just Georgia. This is ubiquitous. Um, But she has a difficult job because she needs to work for John Ossoff without working for John Ossoff. 
um, because John Ossoff's best chance of winning this campaign is um, on April 18th in the first election. She doesn't want it to go to a runoff. He doesn't want it to go to a runoff. Um, but a runoff would mean that she would be able to support John Ossoff in whatever way possible um, because he would be the only Democratic candidate. Um, so that makes her job very difficult um, because she, her job is essentially then to boost turnout um, for Democrats um, because she knows that if she can get Democrats out to the polls, they're going to vote for John Ossoff because um, he's the clear front runner. Um, so her job is just very, very hard um, to balance that line between, you know, working for his campaign, but not working for his campaign because she's not allowed to. And she has a clear, um, she is a clear candidate. She wants to win. Um, and she makes that very clear in, you know, our conversations with her that she wants John Ossoff to win. Um, and she would love to work for John Ossoff, but she can't. Um, so her job is really just, uh, making sure a people know that there is a, an election on April 18th, because that's a big problem with special elections. Um, and B that they actually go out and vote for a Democrat. Um, and basically her, um, her gamble is that they're going to vote for John Ossoff, which is pretty likely, um, but they have to get to the polls. And so basically the Democratic Party of Georgia has been working to make sure that people get to the polls. Um, so with that, let's talk to her. So this is the first um, real competitive race that we're seeing in the nation. Um, what we're seeing is, oh my God, a district that should have been the most safely Republican district in the world was not. Um, and we're seeing an unprecedented unprecedented level of enthusiasm and excitement. In my 15, 16 years working in politics, I have never seen anything like what y'all are about to go see this weekend. It is extraordinary. We had to bring on extra staff just to be able to handle the phone calls and the emails and the desire of people wanting to come and help out and knock on doors and make phone calls and be in the district and write checks. Um, Y'all have seen that John also, then let me for the record, say that the D Democratic Party of Georgia cannot endorse any candidate of, uh, uh, when there's more than one Democrat in a race. Um, it would be ridiculous for us not to recognize that John Ossoff is clearly the leading candidate. He's polling higher than anyone in the 18 candidate field. So I'm going to um, have real talk, but nothing should be construed as the fact that the you know, Democratic Party is endorsing John Ossoff. So he's, um, but he is, he's phenomenal. And he has the support of John Lewis. He has the support of Hank Johnson. He has the support of every Democrat you've pretty much heard of. I don't know if you saw last weekend, he apparently has the support of Alyssa Milano, who randomly flew out here from LA and started going door to door and knocking on doors saying, you want to ride to the polls? I'm Alyssa Milano. I'll give you one. Um, it's phenomenal. The stuff that is happening in this district is crazy. And we're doing phone calls and door knocks into the district, not for a particular candidate, but to educate them about special elections, because as you all know, special elections are have, have historic low turnout. So there's a lot of civics that are involved in teaching people, this is what early vote's gonna look like, this is what the vote's gonna look like, this is what a jungle primary is, you know, and this is what a runoff might mean. Uh, John Ossoff immediately, um, he was one of the first people to tell me that he was running, actually. And he will say, you know, he had a, a certain amount of money that he wanted to be able to raise, and he wanted to be able to have the endorsement of John Lewis. And if he could get both of those things, then he was gonna jump into the race, and he got both of them like that. Um, his fundraising has been prolific. His um, excitement has been, like I said, unlike anything I have ever seen. Um, and they are going to do everything they can to bring it home in April. And if so, 
not only would that be a huge win for Democrats and for Georgia and for the residents of the <laughs> six, thank God, you know, because Lord, they've had to deal with some bad representation. Um, it would also um, be the first referendum on Trump. You know, this is the first time a lot of people ask whether or not nationalizing this race is a really good idea. You know, if you nationalize this race too much and you don't win, is that going to be a reflection on Democrats' hopes, futures, and dreams? Um, and I don't think it is, but I think it would be a mistake not to nationalize it as well, because it is because of national politics that we have this, you know, insurgency. We have these, every the marchers. We had sixty thousand marchers for the women's march. So many of them came from the suburbs. You know, I mean, these are folks that all of a sudden are not okay with the state of politics. Maybe hadn't voted before. Maybe voted Republican because their county commissioner is and their mayor is and whatever. So they're just always used to pulling the Republican ballot. Well, they're fed up. And they're ready to get out there, and they're ready to fight for it. And we are ready to welcome them home. So um, I think we'll see. Uh, I think we'll see higher turnout than what we would normally see for a special election. Um, I'm actually predicting significantly higher turnout. Um, already, we keep track of the early vote every day. About almost 65% of the early votes that have been cast have been coming from Democrat people. So. If this election in on April 18th doesn't end up in a really definite result, but yes. Ossoff is a candidate that goes on, mm -hmm. what role will the Democratic Party of Georgia play? The role I want to be playing now, but okay. can't. Okay. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, internal externally polling, they, uh, they all show that if he sh doesn't win this outright on the April 18th, he will go into this runoff. He's, right. uh, he's there, So because you have to get 50% plus one uh -huh. vote. Um, the Democratic Party at that point will be able to run like a true coordinated campaign. Okay. Yeah. We'll be able to fully coordinate with the candidate. We'll be able to do candidate specific, um, it goes way into FEC stuff, but the state party during a coordinated campaign can do candidate specific campaigning as long as there's a, it's called a multi-candidate exemption. Um, so if, I don't know if you've ever gotten like political mail where it says like, vote for John Ossoff, and then in the corner it's like, also support Shirley Franklin for mayor, and blah, 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 blah. That is called a multi-candidate <laughs> exemption, because the idea for the party to be able to uh, participate in specific campaigns, it has to be the rising tide lifts all boats mentality, it has to benefit Democrats up and down the ballot, which is unique, because in this race, there's only one ballot. <laughs> but so we'll still need to talk about Democrats, others uh, in the areas okay. for like upcoming races, okay. but we can fully coordinate, and the great thing about Georgia is that we have no limits, we can raise as much money ever as we want to, <laughs> possible. So, um, Ossoff can't. He can't raise money more than $10,000, the federal limit to the party. But I can get, if somebody wanted to write me a check for $10 million, I could take it. Now, that said, I could only use $10,000 of it in a federal campaign. So I would have to go around to the rest of the nation and try and buy federal dollars or whatever. But um, so there's a lot of limitations to money. But I'm very crafty. <laughs> so if you find out a find a donor like that, please send her or him my way. Um, so I mean, like special elections, I guess, are kind of a surprise in the sense that you have like no idea they're coming until someone announces uh, yep. that like the seat is wide open. So like, what is that first day like, and like, how do you guys like prepare for like a very short campaign? Well, if it's like a that? Democrat that's residing the seat, typically they'll tell us before. Right. so that we can already get our person like set up to go so that we'll have the advantage in the race. Much like, you know, I'm sure Tom Price immediately went to the governor and said, hey, I'm going to be quartered for this. Luckily, that was in the news, so we all kind of knew what was coming. Um, but yeah, when it's, when it's like this, like, 
Um, this <coughs> terrible legislator in Georgia, one of them, Johnny Caldwell, down in 173, he won in a special election. Um, he's awful. And uh, he, uh, we, we had no notice. It's in rural Georgia. You know, it's like Grady and Bryan, and it's like all these like really large counties that have maybe 4,000 people in the entire county. Can't door knock there. Lucky if you can make phone calls there. There's no <laughs> digital communications there. And it's just like shit, you know, like unless you're ready to go. So you talk to your county committees first. Anybody in your leadership in your county committee, are you ready to go? Do you know anybody to go? Do you know a mayor? Do you know a county commissioner? You know, and you have to just kind of like go into massive overdrive really quickly. And sometimes you come up short, sometimes you don't. Um, sometimes the effort is um, equal to, you know, the, the percentage of Democratic performance in the district. Like in a Caldwell district where 31% are Democrats, it's, it's going to be tough to find somebody to run who probably knows they're going to lose, you know? So it's, um, it's, it's difficult. Is there any part of you that um, is concerned that if we, um, we don't kind of rise now that it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf, you know, people saying over and over again, this is the time for Georgia? And like at some point, people are gonna be like, "It's not the time for Georgia." Yeah. Well, social change happens in increments. I mean, you remember in 2014, two of the best, right? Two of the best people in the world, Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter. I mean, the names, the the people, the the campaigns. Um, but you need that to start. Like, in politics, rarely does somebody come in and change an entire political landscape which requires not just change for your own party, but change for the other party, too. I mean, like, it's it's an incremental process mm -hmm. where you build capacity and you build volunteers and you build infrastructure throughout the state. People don't automatically wake up and decide to vote for Democrats. They are told over and over and over and over and over again why they should vote for Democrats, why their community is voting for Democrats, why it's a safe thing to vote for Democrats, why it's better for their children, for their health care, for their whatever. They don't just do it. And unless you have the resources and the infrastructure to build so that people get aware of what their options are and what it really means, um, they're not going to move that way. So 14 was one of the best things to happen to Georgia in hindsight because it started us on that path. Um, and we've gotten better every year. Um, there's infrastructure now to be able to absorb investment like is played in in other battleground mm -hmm. states. Not we can't measure until it happens what that would do, but there's no question it would do something. So I think the sixth is also going to be really telling, you know. I mean, I, I have I have no I have no question that should we send a Democrat to Washington in the sixth, that um, he's going to do a damn good job. I have a question. Um, so I mean, like a special election again is like odd in the sense that it's also kind of a do-over from like you know, two months ago when you guys also ran in 2016. So, like, what do you do differently? How does that, like, change your campaign strategy? Well, and it is, in a way, a do-over, except that it wasn't a targeted district in 2016, and it was, like, a um, more than a decade-long incumbent. So um, the dynamics are completely different. Um, and we didn't, we didn't run a competitive race in the 6th District in, in 2016. And Tom Price, while Hillary Clinton only lost by one and a half points, he won that district by like 20. So incumbency plays a huge, huge part in that. We also had the great opportunity to talk to John Ossoff's campaign manager, um, a guy by the name of Keenan Pontoni, um, who is in every way, shape, or form a wonk. In our conversations with him, 
he just talked my butt off about numbers and polling and strategy um, and just in like, you know, a six minute conversation with him blew me away with how smart he was. Um, and he had run congressional campaigns before. It's not like he came out of the blue. Um, but basically, um, this guy knows how to run a campaign and he was really brought in by the Democratic Party to win this campaign for John Ossoff. Um, and uh, he's really a numbers guy uh, in every way, shape or form. You know, he has backgrounds in mathematics um, and you can hear just in talking to him, you know, how smart he is. Again, apologies for the audio quality. We were in a very busy campaign office um, in which uh, John Ossoff was running around in the background trying to get ready for debate prep. Uh, so you can actually hear him a little bit in the background, you know, making sure all of his staffers are shuffled and ready. Uh, so we're really appreciative to uh, Mr. Pontoni for talking to us for a couple of minutes um, because he really had to run. So uh, many thanks to him for that. Um, and sorry for the background audio. Uh, but definitely listen in. This guy is fascinating. You guys have, you know, quite a bit more money than a typical congressional election would have. Um, you know, uh, how does that change your campaign strategy and what are you guys doing more of and maybe what are you guys doing less of because of the more money that you guys have? Yeah, well, I think our, I think what it's fair to say is that we have more money than what we've seen in this district, but there are some congressionals that had uh, a lot of resources. I think what we've seen actually is a trajectory of um, expenses becoming higher and higher every cycle. Um, what we're investing in, though, is the ground game. We're investing in the field. We're investing in community uh, outreach and development. Um, we have a house party program that we haven't really executed since, you know, the days of Paul Wellstone, where we are, we are having two, three, or more house parties uh, a day. Um, and we are knocking more doors uh, than congressionals typically knock, and we're investing in those operations. The money we're trying to put in is not more money on TV or more money on radio. We're trying to put more money into the community having access to the campaign and John having access to the community. Um, so you talked a little bit about, you know, getting uh, investment in field. How do you get people to actually volunteer for your campaign? You know, what do you do to actually get people out to your offices and canvassing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is actually where the community deserves all the credit. Um, we have amazing community leaders and volunteers from across the district who were organizing before John even announced and were organizing before I even got into the district. And their energy and enthusiasm is how we have built this massive volunteer base. Um, we, we do a lot of the normal tactics, the calls and confirmation calls and the follow-ups and all the volunteer recruitment tactics that we would normally use. But the return on our investment of that is so high because all these organizations have developed um, and are so well organized and so enthusiastic that we've been able to capitalize on that. And so I really think the campaign doesn't deserve the credit the way those organizations deserve the credit. What's been your favorite moment of the campaign so far? It's a good question. Um, I think, you know, John mentioned in, that he loved being out here for these field events. And I think there was, an, a there was a moment where we were at um, an organization's public forum where John um, really, really spoke so authentically and honestly. It was really early on, and I was so inspired by him and so grateful to be working for and with him. Um, and the community response to him was so positive. Um, it was just a very, very uh, special moment for me, and it really felt like we had this special lightning in a bottle perfect candidate, perfect community, 
perfect historical moment to do something truly historic. When it comes to targeting voters, are you guys trying to convince undecided voters, or are you trying to make sure uh, Democrats who you know would vote for Ossoff are trying to get out um, and vote? It's both. It's both. It has to be both in a, in a district that leans Republican. Um, we have been an intense and in, in have we have executed an intense persuasion program and an intense mobilization program. Both are uh, operating simultaneously, um, and we're we're fully invested in both. That actually hasn't been. We've been fortunate to not have to choose one or the other. We've we've been successful in doing both. Is there anything you do, you know, behind the scenes that people may not know about that? Uh, really help you be successful on a day-to-day -day basis? I think John mentioned sleep. I think I don't sleep. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, I, you know, one thing that I really love about this campaign, and I, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of great people, but behind the scenes, John and I will just sometimes get to talking about policy or issues and I just have never met somebody who's so genuine and so committed um, to public service and to doing what's right that um, I think those actually turn out to be really valuable moments because we, even though it's casual and it's supposed to be kind of relaxing for both of us, we end up kind of learning more about what our messaging should be and how we should be talking to voters during those casual um, kind of breaks. You know, so he'll be at the airport or he'll be... Um, you know, on a ride back from an event or something, and we'll just get to talking casually. And um, I think that kind of stuff has been remarkably productive. Thanks. So our next guest is really the reason that the nation is paying attention to the Georgia 6 election, uh, a special election in which normally people would be tuning out, to be quite frank with you. Um, this guy is uh, a man by the name of John Ossoff. Uh, he is running for the Democratic Party um, for the Georgia 6 Congress. And um, this guy has really, really excited the Democratic Party. Um, a little bit of background about him. He ran an investigative film company uh, for a couple of years um, in which, you know, they really expose corruption and something he's running on. Um, and he also worked as a congressional aide, uh, specifically in national security, uh, for Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia. Um, he also interned for Congressman John Lewis. But the exciting part for you listeners is he's also a Georgetown alum. Uh, who studied in the School of Foreign Service for uh, four years um, and, you know, really embodies, you know, pure personalis and being a Hoya. Um, so we got to talk to him a little bit about that. Um, but it's really important to know that, uh, again, this would not be a contested election without John Ossoff. I mean, um, he's really a guy that's gotten the Democratic Party so excited. And uh, we can see just by visiting his, uh, um, his office for an opening and, you know, why we got to talk to him, just how many people had turned out. Uh, to canvas for this guy and to, you know, really listen to this guy talk. Um, and he's really captivated not only um, the Georgia Six, but also America. I mean, it's why Fly on the Wall really decided to travel down there to talk to him and talk to um, a lot of people in this election. Um, so he's a really interesting guy and someone you should really check out. But luckily, we got to talk to him and got to ask him a couple of questions. Um, so listen in. A lot of what we do on this podcast is, you know, getting behind the scenes of what goes on in politics. So, you know, what's something that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that's kind of behind the scenes that maybe we don't know about that helps you be successful? That's a good question. You need to give me a second to think about it. Go for it. Um, probably the most important thing, this is uh, not as exciting as you might want, but <laughs> is, is getting eight hours of sleep. Because by the time uh, you're at your fifth or sixth or seventh event of the day, and you've got to maintain the, the mental sharpness, um, 
to, to not make mistakes and to uh, keep folks excited and speak in an informed and substantive way. You can be um, dragging a bit, but uh, Alicia makes sure that I resist the uh, my natural inclination to surf the web until 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and get to bed on time. Uh, what's been your favorite moment of the campaign so far? You know, that single moment where you knew this was all worth it. Well, um, each time uh, we come out to our field offices uh, to launch canvases, there are more and more people here. Uh, the momentum and the excitement are just building as the election approaches. And each time I come out and see that the room is packed and that people are fired up and want to go knock on some doors and make a difference, it's a, a huge boost for me and the whole team. What do you think it is about this election you know, that has the nation, you know, pretty much everybody watching, why is it that a special election in Georgia 6 has captivated this country? Well, it's the first chance in the country to make a statement about um, what we believe in and that uh, most folks here in Georgia's 6th district uh, think that the country can only become more prosperous, stronger, more secure if we stay true to our core values. And there's um, a sense out there that we're losing touch with some of those values. And uh, this is um, a historic chance to uh, show the country and show the world um, that we're still an open and decent, kind, respectful people. Uh, last question, because you were a Hoya. Uh, any question or any uh, advice you have for Hoyas on the Hilltop who uh, you know, have been inspired by this campaign? Yeah, take down the YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> or leave them up. I mean, you know what? Maybe just leave them up because, I mean, one of the, one of the things that's going to happen is our generation uh, steps into positions of leadership in business and politics and the nonprofit world is um, folks are going are gonna, to uh, start to see that, you know, everyone's just a person. Um, and... Uh, everyone, uh, maybe not everyone's played beer pong, but um, everyone's lived, lived a life. And uh, I think it's actually, um, as time goes by, people are, are going to be uh, more real. And um, we can dispense with some of the, the illusions of politics and just try to get things done. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. So our next guest, uh, I'm really happy to talk to, and I'm really happy to, uh, that you guys get to listen to her because she really brings a fascinating perspective to this race. Her name is Sally Harrell, and she's been uh, you know, the state representative for the Georgia legislature um, for this area for quite a while. Um, she is well-known by the residents. Uh, the residents know her well, um, and she knows the residents very well. Um, and basically, she was the quote-unquote establishment candidate from the area uh, for really quite a while. Um, until John Ossoff jumped into the race. And, you know, she knew right when this seat opened up that she wanted to get into it. Um, and she did for a while. The problem is John Ossoff then jumped into the race um, and really, you know, took the GA6 area by storm. But he brought two things that really pushed her out. Uh, the first was $250,000 in pledged money, uh, which is a huge sum of money for a special election campaign, you know, to jump right off. And the second is uh, he brought the endorsement of John Lewis. Um, and while Sal Sally Harrell had, you know, quite a few really good endorsements from really good politicians in the GA6 area. Um, John Lewis just, you know, 
brings the weight of the entire Georgia party and the, the entire Democratic Party, to be completely honest with you. Um, and at the end of the day, there was really no beating that. So she actually dropped out um, in the name of party unity. Um, and she was polling it, you know, solid enough numbers to really split the vote, um, but knew that John Ossoff was going to win out over her and also knew that um, and also knew that uh, splitting the vote would really bring the Republican Party the win. Um, I also apologize in advance. We met her at an airport um, restaurant. So a lot of what you're going to hear in the background is airplanes and airplane noises. So apologies for that. But, you know, Fly on the Wall is really being authentic this week. And we're doing something a little different. So I hope you guys really like this. No, that's... Oh, yeah, you have to say it again. That gets... That is okay. You really do. It was a great question. All right. So um, when you're starting out, like, from the very beginning... How do you go about beginning an electoral race, like, for example, the Georgia 6th District? And also, um, what drove you to decide to get involved? And did it have anything to do with Trump getting elected, or was it something that was completely um, separate from that? Okay. I'll take the second question first. <laughs> we'll do it in reverse yeah. order. Okay. What drove me? Um, yes, it was Trump getting elected. I will pause for the airplane to pass. Many appreciations. Should be any moment now. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a look at the flight. It's still picturesque. Yeah, it's really cool. It is pretty. Oh. Thank you. Yes, it was Trump getting elected that drove me. Just like everyone else, I was so devastated and after just doing nothing but reading for like two weeks because I felt like there were things I needed to educate myself on because you know I didn't know what the alt-right was I didn't know who Steve Bannon was I didn't pay attention to those things um, so after just immersing myself in reading for like two weeks I got so depressed, it was like, I have to do something. And everyone else was asking the same question, what can I do? And everyone has a different answer to that because everyone has different skills and everyone has different passions and everyone has different experience. And what I do and what I've done well is run for office. And so, um, yes, so when I realized Tom Price was probably gonna be leaving his position, I was like, yes, I can, I can do this. Um, one thing you want to be careful of when you run for office is that, is that the people who are important to you, around you, are into it too, your family. Mm -hmm. um, and so I checked in with, actually my husband was, actually he was the one who was encouraging me to do it. He kept saying, hmm, Tom Price is leaving his position. He kept dropping <laughs> hints. He kept dropping hints and I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> um, and then I realized he was kind of serious. And so I talked to my kids about it. My kids are 15 and 17. And, and I said, well, what do you think about this? And they were like, yeah, you should go for it. And, and quite, quite frankly, well, they're teenagers. So on one hand, they probably thought, ooh, if she does that, she won't pay attention to what I'm doing. <laughs> cool. Distracted mother. This is good. Um, but, but they were devastated when Trump was elected. So I think it offered them some some hope. They were that age, their pre-voting age, and what they saw is, oh my god, I can't even vote in this, and these people are changing my life. They felt powerless. 
So they sort of had some memories from their very early years of mom, you know, doing big things. And, and so I think they liked that idea because it gave them some sense of, of power. Um, how do you start a campaign? Money, money, money. <laughs> you have to raise money. That is the very first thing. Um, and so you really, you, there are charts you can follow to think through all of your circles of friends, colleagues, groups, and you make a spreadsheet and you put people's names and you put their contact information. Because I hadn't been in politics, I had taken some time away. My contacts were out of date, technology had changed, so I had to rebuild all those contact lists and you know, make this spreadsheet, a kind of a call list. Um, how many times have you called? How much are you gonna ask them? Um, so you're, you're really on the phone and meeting with people constantly in order to get those, those dollars in. In my case, I also put a lot of energy into developing that um, issues platform uh, and developing the, the web page. Um, so you, know, you need, you need up-to-date photos even. And so we had to schedule a photo shoot and, um, you know, get your hair done and get clothes for everybody and find a location. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, and get that platform out because that becomes a fundraiser tool as well. Um, and it's just network, network, network. Um, even before you can launch the actual nuts and bolts of, of the campaign. So that's kind of what it's like to, to get started. So I'm just curious about uh, where you think the Democratic Party of Georgia stands right now in terms of infrastructure, in terms of messaging, ground game, anything. Just your thoughts on the party right now and today. Okay. I think I'm going to start answering that question from a very local level. Yeah. When I first got into politics in the late 90s, I asked about the Democratic Party of DeKalb County, which would be my home Democratic Party, and I was told, don't bother. <laughs> so I never went to a party meeting. Um, I wasn't involved with the party. Uh, I just did my own thing. I ran my own campaign. I got elected. I served. Uh, I had really very little contact with the state party. So when this election happened, Suddenly, what I saw in the 6th District has three counties in it, so I was seeing three local parties. And what I saw is that suddenly, people were starting to show up. Where 10 people might have shown up, 200 people showed up. So what I'm seeing right now is a resurgence of the local party. Um, and some of the counties are further developed than others. What's interesting is that Cobb County, which again is one of the counties, yes, your home county, <laughs> Cobb County is much more, it's much further, more further far along than um, the other two counties. And Cobb County surprised us in the November election because it turned blue, which was the first time ever. And once, when I started asking why did that happen? How did that happen? What I heard was more than a, just a demographic shift. It's, it, it, it had been happening because of the work people were doing. 
um, very organized groups of women out there campaigning for Hillary, a very strong structure within the party, strong leadership within the party. And so that excited me. And in my home county of DeKalb, we are, we are rebuilding. Um, it took us, last month, it took us a good two to three hours just to elect a chair and a vice chair. It was painful, but we did it. And people are starting to rebuild the committees and they're starting to realize that they don't just have to wait for candidates to show up and they don't have to be told by candidates what they're about. They can get behind their candidates early and they can tell the candidates what the candidates need to support. So what I'm seeing is that we're, we're rebuilding from the ground level up, which is what we're going to have to do. But because there's been this huge vacuum at the ground level, it's, it's been, at least for the last 20 years that I've seen it, it's been from top down. And I think we're at a point right now where the top hasn't realized that they don't get just get to tell us what to do anymore. So they're kind of acting the same way, but pretty soon that bottom's going to come up and it, it, it's, it, the voice is going to get stronger. Um, and I'm very excited to see that happen. So how do you kind of think, like, to reconcile kind of the like, immediate desire for results with like the need for like thoughtful and thorough like, like restructuring, rebuilding? Like, how do you kind of reconcile those? Ask that question one more time. Yeah, so like, just like people want to see change, like within the Democratic Party or whatever, like yeah. now. now. Yeah. But like, in order to really effectively rebuild, it can't just be done with snapping fingers. So right. like, how does how do they kind of reconcile those two kind of contradicting forces? That's a really good question, and I think the reality is that you were right. It, it is going to take time uh, because people are elected to positions for like four years at a time. So if you don't make a massive change right now, you've got to wait another four years. Um, so I, I think it's a matter of, I think people will get discouraged. There's all this energy right now. Like, take this sixth district race. Everybody's excited about it because, you know, we're going to win it. We're going to send a message. Well, what happens if we don't win it? We need to be prepared for that. We need to be able to pick people up and say, it's okay, we've got to keep going. Look at what we have done. We've built this infrastructure. We've, you know, there's hundreds of people who have never gone door to door before who have now gone door to door. Maybe we need thousands, but we've got hundreds. So we need to really recognize the accomplishments we have made in order to not let people get discouraged and, and quit. We need to acknowledge those baby steps. So I have a question. Um, I mean, you know this district very well. Um, you've represented it before. You have a good understanding of its people. Um, so you know what issues drive uh, GA6 residents? You know, what are they looking for in a candidate? And you know, what, what are their you know, top three priorities when they go out to the polls, you know, regardless of what party they're really voting for? You know what? I, and I, I have to speak to uh, who would be my constituents, which, which are the, the Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, they are so not used to having a candidate <laughs> <laughs> that 
all you have to do is go out there and say, I'm your candidate, and they love you. <laughs> They're so hungry. That's all they need. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Their expectations are, are just not that high, and they're not that sophisticated. They will get there. So someone we had the great opportunity of talking to was a man by the name of Judson Hill. Judson Hill is the Republican state senator from the GA6 area, or part of the GA6 area. Um, and, you know, he's on a very, very busy schedule lately, so we're really appreciative of him for taking the time to talk to us. Um, and he's really busy right now because he's in an awkward place of being third in, you know, the 10 or 11 Republican field um, for this uh, election. Um, and he really has a lot of work to do in the next couple of weeks because uh, he really has the great opportunity um, to really get that first slot. Um, but he has to really work for it. Um, and he's been doing so. He's been canvassing for the last couple of days. And he likes to canvass himself, which is something we really like to see in candidates for sure. Um, and so we caught him just in between canvassing trips. Um, so we're really appreciative of talking to him. We talked to him really quickly about what that is and what that's like um, and, you know, his ideas for winning. Um, so a lot of what our podcast tries to do is, you know, get behind the scenes of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. So could you talk about something that you do every day that maybe not everyone knows about that you think uh, is going to make you successful in this race? Well, every single day we're very disciplined on raising money because you have to have the money to get your message out. But also we're connecting with and I'm connecting with voters every single day, personally connecting with voters on the street, in the neighborhoods and on the telephone. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. So we had the opportunity to talk to uh, one of the staffers for uh, Bob Gray for Congress. Bob Gray is the number two Republican um, running to replace Tom Price uh, in the polls. And he's really interesting in that he's really the only Republican who's tying himself directly to Donald Trump um, and is outwardly saying, yep, Trump is, you know, the president we need. Um, we really like his ideas. And he's really the candidate who's um, really going with a lot of, you know, the drain the swamp uh, rhetoric that Donald Trump has, you know, really been pushing, um, which is really interesting in these elections and why this special election is so fascinating, because um, we're really getting the first look at how Republicans are going to run um, in a post-Donald Trump presidency, um, and we're really getting a good chance to see um, some people, you know, at arm's length, while others, you know, you know really embracing uh, the Trump administration. Um, so we actually sat down with uh, his political director, Joe, um, who really talked to us about uh, what it's like to run for uh, Congress, you know, what that work is like, um, and, you know, what he does specifically. Um, so, yeah, just a little bit more, you know, like, what do you, when you, talk, when you knock on these people's doors, you know, what do you, what do you talk to them about, you know, what are your conversations like? Well, I mean, each voter's different. Mm -hmm. um, so what we try to do is sell Bob's uh, background on him, you know, as he's done, like I said, three decades in business, uh, business in over 30 different countries. He's the only one in this race who understands what it's like to do business here in the United States and in other countries as well, which is a big problem right now for a lot of voters, you know, because they see a lot of our jobs being shipped overseas. They see a lot of businesses leaving, and he's someone who understands this process and could help enact policies to bring businesses and good-paying jobs back to America. He's somebody who is uh, an outsider and hasn't spent his life in politics. He's not ruled by the political class. He's, uh, you know, just the type of person that can go out and uh, go to Washington, D.C., get the job done for us. And, come back the same person we sent him there to be. I have a question that may be a little bit further down the line. So, like, if um, Bob were to come out in the top two on April 18th and there it goes to a runoff, how then, with, like, it being such an intense campaign right now, how then do you, would you kind of work to unify the Republican Party um, going forward to the June 20th runoff 
and then if you were to win even on, on June 20th as well, how then do you kind of unify the district that's maybe more divided right now than it has been in the past? Okay. Uh, I mean, well, you know, uh, Bob's message is of a conservative outsider, mm -hmm. and it resonates throughout the district. So there's a lot of people who are upset with a lot of different campaigns, mm -hmm. and most of that's due to the politicians who have spent their names, not time running after ballot, on the ballot, on the ballot. Bob doesn't have that baggage. He's, like I said, he's a businessman, and it would, would be much easier for us to unify these different groups and bring them together because everyone gets passionate about their candidate, everyone gets passionate about their campaign, but at the end of the day, we have to send the best person to Congress, and, you know, we believe Bob's that guy, and, you know, I think the voters will uh, pick up that message as well. Um, so uh, one of the things that we have heard is that Bob is really great on the campaign trail, on a debate. Um, how, um, how important is that to y'all, and how much um, time goes into preparing for these debates? Well, you know what? Uh, unlike the other candidates, we don't actually have to prepare too much. Bob's a knowledgeable guy, and when you get up there and you tell the truth every time, you don't have to worry about saying something wrong. Right. I was going to say, so, like, what types of things go on in this office? Like, um, and how does it change from really far out in the election? So, like, a, like a couple of months before to... Um, when you get into the, like, two or three days before the election, mm -hmm. yeah. okay. how will your strategy kind of change? Okay, we'll just let you all know we do have another office uh, mm -hmm. located in Cobb, which is where we have a lot of our manpower right now. Okay. We have uh, probably about 15 uh, staff and volunteers over there right now. It's filled up. And, uh, you know, right now basically what we've been doing is uh, a lot of voter contact, a lot of ID and who our supporters are you know, talking to people, educating them on Bob, because we believe when we get our message out there, mm -hmm. we have the best message and we can get more people on our side. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we've been doing. And as it gets closer to the election, that'll turn into uh, basically mobilizing our base to make sure they get to the polls and vote. You mentioned, like, mobilizing people and getting them to, like, vote mm -hmm. is the most important part. So, like, given the nature of a special election and that it's, like, an, an off time and, like, people don't always know about it, how, like, on the ground as, like, campaign staffers, like, what do you think is the most effective way of, like, getting people to just even know that there's an election or, or like how have you guys been doing that well we have a lot of volunteers a lot of people excited about our campaign uh, they've been knocking a lot of doors I, i'm willing to bet we probably knock more doors than any three campaigns combined and thousands of doors and you know we've been pushing it out and we id them at the door we find out who our supporters are and we, we turn it back out and you know people are excited to go vote in this they're you know they're still upset with what's going on in dc uh, you know, they're upset that, you know, the Republican leadership in D.C. had an opportunity to repeal and replace Obamacare after they said they were going to do it for seven years, and they fumbled the ball on the two-yard line. And they see that, and they see, you know, uh, our campaign, our candidate, as someone who can go there and enact the actual changes we need to make a difference. And uh, I think, you know, we'll be able to turn a lot of people out. Yeah, so that was really interesting for me. Um, I have I volunteered with the, the Democratic Party before um, during high school and, and things like that, but um, I'd never met with really any of the kind of like the upper level officials. And so that was really cool to kind of just hear more behind the scenes stuff and learn how the party really works and also to get to see what she thinks about the, the future of the Democratic Party in Georgia, which is something really important to me. Um, and I think it's got some good prospects according to her. Okay, this is a big moment for GU Politics Hoyas and GA because we are at Waffle House. Hannah, you want to tell us what you can get for $7 at Waffle House? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. You can get the all-star special, which includes coffee, toast, grits, eggs, bacon, 
ham, sausage, and a waffle. It's insane, Christian.